And a very good morning to you. We're live in London. You're with Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson. Coming up on today's show, David Badanis and Latika Burke are my guests in the studio taking a look at the weekend's papers. David, have you spotted any UFOs this week? As I was walking down the street coming to these beautiful studios, I thought I saw something shimmering in the sky. But no, no, it was just a Republican trying to get attention for his campaign for Trump. Thank you very much indeed for that. Much more from those two. We'll be checking in with our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, in a little while. And Mary Fitzgerald will bring us an update about North Africa. It's the 30th of July, 2023. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday. Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with Emma Nelson. And a very warm welcome to Studio One. It is Monocle on Sunday with me, Emma Nelson, in the studio with me today. Uh, Latika Burke, journalist of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. A very good morning to you, Latika. Good morning, Emma. And good to have you as well with us, uh, David Badanis. How- good morning. Oh. And how are we both this morning? Very uh, well. I've been uh, kept awake, however, by not UFOs, but... Uh, f- planes in the sky, Emma, and it does remind me how normal life is to be worried about plane noise once again. Well, how noisy are we talking here? Are you underneath? You, you, you're not in stains, Well, no, no, I'm not under a flight path. This is the extraordinary thing, although I do note that when I do fly in and over central London, I can kind of look down and see my house, which is really fun. It's the best thing. It's really, really nice. Um, the other side of that is once those flights get going on early on a Sunday morning, London is actually so quiet. I think that it elevates the plane noise. Good fun. We will be talking a little bit about how everybody's jumping back on planes. There was an article in the FT this weekend, and I hate to say I'll be on a plane later on this afternoon. So, And so I hate to say this, but I've packed my glasses. So what I read out from whatever notes I've taken from this morning are going to be basically made up as we go along. <laughs> uh, David Badanis, have you spotted... You, I asked you before we started, have you spotted UFOs? This has been something you've been following all week, isn't it? Uh, UFOs are my friend. I would love there to be uh, uh, nice UFOs that infuse intelligence upon the uh, uh, superior beings of planet Earth. Uh, Astronomers have been uh, less successful in discovering them than often drunk people in pickup trucks in the American South. I don't know why. Okay. Uh, Speaking of superior beings on planet Earth, let's check in with our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, who is in South Tyrol. Uh, Do I say buongiorno or guten morgen to you this morning, Tyler? Good to have you with us. Yeah, beides. Guten Morgen und uh, buongiorno, Emma. Good to have you uh, on the line. Uh, you're in uh, Tyrol, which is that wonderful mix-up of, of you don't you go into a shop and you don't know which language to grasp. Uh, what takes you to uh, is Murano this weekend, wasn't it? It was Murano indeed, and uh, you're absolutely right. It is uh, one of those stretches of the world where, depending on where you are in this confined geography in the mountains. Uh, you could walk in, you could be in one village and 90% of the people are German speakers and you could drive two kilometers and it's completely opposite. Everyone's speaking Italian, but you're still in the same region and everything is bilingual, of course. Um, but I'm in, I'm in Lana right now. So it's sort of the heart, um, of, of the valley or at least one valley. Uh, and this is not too far from where we also have our, uh, our store, of course, in Merano, where we had a fantastic, our sort of our annual summer party on Friday evening. Um, so tell us a little bit of all about that. There was a tremendous amount of excitement as the, as the London contingent was departing uh, for, for, the, for the knees up last weekend. Did it go to plan? It did go to plan. We were uh, almost out of focaccia, almost out of uh, the very good sparkling wine to do it to this, this part of the region. Anyway, the Gunders and forced beer. So it was, it was a record crowd, people in from Brussels and Berlin and uh, even as, as far away as Miami. You do forget, don't you, that, that when you are in Sitterol, that the language kind of draws your attention that you are in a perfect meeting spot. 
Absolutely. I mean, this is, uh, of course, this is, this is one of the reasons why this area is so wealthy because uh, people had to, of course, traverse the Alps, and and you had the the the, you know, the, the very wily Sutrolers uh, were, of course, taking yeah the toll fees for anyone who had to pass through their <laughs> through their valley. So you do meet these uh, families here who, of course, been in the region uh, for centuries with enormous wealth, um, and it's probably because their forefathers uh, either had long spears, uh, crossbows, and were making sure that if you had to make your way from Milan to Munich, you were going to pay for it. I'm assuming that there are no long spears and crossbows on Friday evening in Murano, just for catcher. <laughs> well, listen, actually, I was going to say, could be one for your son, Emma, but uh, the medieval games uh, are coming up very, very soon, uh, not far from uh, the town of Glaren. So we're talking about, you know, of course, full armor, full battle, uh, and uh, and I'm sure it's quite a draw for a very specific type of tourist. Yes, quite niche, but my goodness, the dress-up will be good. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, speaking of dress-up, um, it's always nice to sort of check the, check the temperature of hiking clothes. I know you're very particular about your hiking clothes. They have to be well-designed. They also have to be of a supernatural, breathable material. But have you, dis- uh, by, by all accounts, you spotted a slip in standards. Is that correct this year? Well, I don't have to slip in standards. I think it's ongoing. I'm, I always sort of wonder who works for these multi-billion dollar corporations. And they come up with the weirdest color combinations. You would never buy a car in this color. You would never paint your home in this color. Uh, and you would certainly never buy clothes for day wear. But somehow someone thinks that a really off yellow, and I like the color yellow, but you get like a greeny yellow, is going to look really great with teal. And I also sort of wonder why teal is the defining color at least the accent color of people who want to climb mountains. It's a bit strange. Well, these are two colors that, dare I say, if you have been to Austria or or that neck of the woods where you are, the teal and that funny lime green seem to be a a persistent irritant, don't they? I I do blame the Austrians completely for this because the Austrians like that, that strange lime green. You'll find it in restaurants and hotels that were renovated in the early 2000s. You'll find it in train interiors, and you'll certainly find it you know, on, on the thighs and backs of, of, of hikers. Maybe it has something to do with Alpine Rescue. Uh, you'll be well spotted uh, if you're in that color of green, but who knows? Maybe not. If it's a, a verdant meadow, they may never find you. I wonder whether it's supposed to be modern with a capital M. I don't know. Um, let's have a look at what else is happening where, where you are. Um, Big news coming out of your neck of the woods is that there's a problem with wolves. Have you encountered any of those, or is everybody prepped with their with their spears and their and their longbows? Listen, I'm out for a walk right now, of course, in fully breathable natural garments, and I've not spotted any any wolves yet. But this was the lead story, and talk about great journalism, the power of picking the right image to of course, defined in a very, well, of course, on a very small screen these days, uh, you know, what is a, a, a issue. So here we had uh, in the Dolomiten, uh, which is the, the German language paper of record of this part of Italy, and you had a, the shredded carcass of a sheep. And so some wolves had descended on Thursday evening, of course, to the, onto, uh, or with it, into the certain paddock. I don't know, I think you keep sheep in. And um, they mauled or, or, or killed uh, 10 out of 14 sheep. So, of course, farmer completely up in arms. He said, you know, yes, I, I'm all for, you know, supporting uh, the comeback of wolves. However, I need to have the right to shoot them because you've now literally decimated uh, a big uh, chunk of my livelihood. 
Um, this happened, I think I was in Austria about six or seven years ago, and, there, and a wolf decided to, to basically go for a midnight snack in an alpine farm. And it dominated the headlines for ages and ages and ages, simply because it decimated people. Well, it kind of put people off going for a walk up the mountain. Um, I mean, it, it is quite off-putting, isn't it? Well, it is. And also, not too far south from here, you remember there was a story some weeks ago uh, about the person out for a walk, not sure if they were natural fibres or not, but who was attacked and killed by a bear. Uh, now, they caught the bear, uh, and uh, and the bear, was, <laughs> so far, he or she has had a stay of execution. Um, it's a wild place you're staying in at the moment. Um, I know that we've all been following the UFO story in the house uh, closely this week in America. Um, uh, have you been following it at all, Tyler? Because it has been completely wonderful, speaking of spotting odd things. It, it has, and it's been interesting watching the, the various news organisations uh, of course, cover this story. And actually, surprisingly, I think one of the best TV outlets that did a really good job was Al Jazeera. And uh, their, their coverage from Washington, of course, live you're off the back of these hearings uh, in Congress. Uh, and, and of course, the, the, the testimony for, for people, of course, who hadn't seen the UFOs, but certainly had heard about, you know, biological matter removed from crash sites, etc., was completely fascinating. Now, um, I can say we've had huge storms at night. I mean, these typical summer storms that you get, you know, early evening or late in the evening in the Alps. I think it's probably put a lot of UFOs off uh, from being uh, in this part of Mitteleuropa. Uh, so, and of course, I mean, listen, if, you know, if I'm uh, from outer space, then of course I can uh, read the Dolomiten. You know, I don't want to be encountering any wolves uh, if my UFO comes somewhere down in... Um, in the Pasayotal or some other other valley. Um, let's bring in David Badanis briefly on this one because he's been following the UFO story. This is kind of your bag. Um, if you were a UFO, would you be put off if everybody was wearing lime green hiking gear? Uh, the, what many people don't understand about the hiking gear in that part of the re- world is it was designed by the government to keep down the population. It would make sure that people didn't propagate and mate. Uh, it keeps you uh, safely <laughs> at a distance, interested in higher spiritual matters. I suppose Sally has got a point. It's an excellent contraceptive, or rather, dare I say, say it, 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 as my mother would say, God saving two other people, Tyler. <laughs> we seem to, Tyler will be with us in back, in back in a moment. Um, Latika, how about you? Is there any lime green stuff in the back of the wardrobe? If I was a UFO, I would be absolutely beaming down to planet Earth for Tyler Brule's hiking fashion tips and <laughs> critiques. I just want to hear more and more. Um, no, I don't have any heel, uh, teal hiking gear, although I did learn the hard way yesterday about uh, loose breathable fabrics go because on. I wore my very tight leggings to go um, traipsing the Thames path between Oxford and, sorry, not Ab- Abingdon and Benson, so a beautiful 12-mile walk. Um, but there were just so many thistles everywhere, and I really wished I'd worn some loose gear because it would have picked up all the prickles before my leggings did. This outdoor pursuit thing, Tyler, is getting rather dangerous. We have thistles from Latika. We have uh, uh, sort of outdoor gear as a contraceptive and then attacks from bears and wolves nowadays. I mean, should we all just wait for winter? Yeah, well, you can see I, I missed that last question because I think obviously the UFOs Knew that we were speaking rudely about them. We're not being really rude about them, but um, I am sort of I am fascinated to see how this story unfolds. And here's my question: I think also David as well. Is it only you know? Is it only the U.S. that is sitting on this knowledge? I mean, also same with Australia. I mean, are, you know, is there going to be some type of hearing in Canberra soon as well on a similar topic? You know, Australia, great expanse of land. 
you know, a reasonable Air Force that they're also reinvesting in as well. I can't only, all this knowledge can't be only sitting in Washington. I am so fascinated by this because actually the way I got my diet of UFO news was to go onto some uh, UFO believer podcasts all week. And it really struck me that this was the first iteration of Deep State. You know, these people sound like Trumpers or QAnoners. And these were the very early conspiracy theories. And I do think, of course, the internet has allowed all this to spread and they find their pockets in every country around the world and, and they find their fellow tin um, uh, foil hatters. But I do think there's something very uniquely American about the way these conspiracies have started and proliferated and have reached this upper echelons that we saw last week where this testimony is brought forward to Congress. Uh, somebody once said that if uh, uh, if dark-skinned people have gods, the gods themselves would be dark-skinned. I think Her- Herodotus said that. Or if tall people, if giraffes had gods, they would be tall. So think what the UFOs are like in America. It's kind of a rejection of the American dream. <laughs> They're high technology. Out of all the nations on Earth, they've chosen God's favorite a- a- as the best. They're, they also travel great distances and stuff. They originally come in peace before they zap you and you know take over. <laughs> it kind of reenacts uh, what people think American history was. Brilliant. Thank you, Tom. Tyler, let's uh, touch briefly on your column. Uh, we've already touched on um, not very great colour co- combinations, but interior design is something that that's obviously piqued your interest this week when it comes to the way it's been covered in various magazines. Well, indeed, and I was actually talking, and, and I, I, I may be a sort of a fan this week, uh, because I do talk about flinging a magazine across um, uh, an aircraft ca- uh, cabin, because at least you would know what kind of object it was that was heading your direction. So here's the thing. This is, you know, we are, we are moving into high, high summer. Of course, you know, the highways and, and the TGV is absolutely rammed in France. Everybody is, you know, heading off on holidays. It's going to be the same situation in Italy as well. This is the time of the sun lounger, it's the towel, it's the beach, it's going to your kiosk uh, when whatever village you're in, in the south of France, Italy, Greece, getting your stack of, of favorite magazines. And I did this en route to Lisbon last week, and I just thought I was going to give, you know, this certain publishing company a chance again because they've been through a massive reorganization. I thought I would pick up some of my favorite uh, interior and architecture titles. And, and, okay, this has come off the back of, you know, massive restructuring at this company, Slimming, downsizing, and, and, and the worst thing of all, uh, getting rid of editors-in-chief um, and replacing them with, well, content directors, content managers. And I think... We wait with bated breath. I think we'll never find out. Or we may try and get him a little bit later on to find out uh, what he found in his uh, magazine that got him so angry and nearly threw something across a. Uh, aeroplane. Um, Tyler Brule will try and get him back. He's, uh, he'll be, uh, he may join us a little bit later on, on today's programme. But in the meantime, um, have you ever thrown anything across the inside of a plane? I think I'd get chucked out for that one. Not me, definitely <laughs> not. I'm very well behaved on planes because I'm so worried that, I mean, one, I'm obviously very well behaved all the time everywhere in public, but um, if you got blacklisted, wouldn't that just be an absolute nightmare? Yes. If you got too rowdy and drunk one day and then, you know, careered up the the aisle in, in bad form, I, I think that would be an absolute disaster for the rest of your life. There was a thing a few weeks ago, wasn't there, that if uh, the, the Brits, the British authorities were going to send uh, WhatsApp messages to predominantly young people in airports as they were transiting through on their way to a plane saying, if you get drunk, then there's prison or a £9,000 fine. Oof. 
So that was one of those things. David, you don't strike me as anybody who suffers anything other than a terrible experience of legroom because, dare I say it, you're, you're tall. You're super tall. I would love there to be little latches on my hips where uh, at necessary times you can just take off the legs, stow them carefully, <laughs> carefully and balanced in the overhead luggage container and sit comfortably as a little stump happily on your seat, wiggling my hands with enough space. I dream about that. No, I, I, I'm terribly tall. Luckily, my son is taller and suffers even more. Is it getting worse, though, for you? Because a couple of weeks ago, I was on an aeroplane to Zurich and I saw the most uncomfortable group of people I've ever seen, which was the UK rowing team were in economy on a British Airways flight and they had knees touching their chins. Ooh, that's that's really bad. Uh, In the old days, I used to do the following thing. It often gave me an upgrade. Uh, I would get a little uh, uh, index card and I would draw a half circle on it and then dangle from a string uh, some sort of weight, like a pen or something. And then uh, when the plane takes off, uh, once it gets going, it takes off a constant acceleration maybe between 11 and 18 seconds. And if you look at the angle coming back, there's a little formula, you can work off your takeoff speed. So I used to tell the air hostess uh, our estimated takeoff speed with my little kids uh, next to me, counting one, 1,000, two, 1,000. And usually we were quite accurate. The pilots loved it. They'd say, and we'd often get upgraded. Well, often means twice. I would dream to sit next to a David Badanis on a plane. Obviously, once you've folded your legs in the overhead locker, but you used to do this with your kids on a plane. Uh, one time we flew from uh, London to San Francisco. I was sitting next to my little girl, who was, uh, at, at that point, uh, young and obedient. And when we arrived in San Francisco, <laughs> the people in the row in front of us turned around and said, that was very illuminating and nonstop. What did you teach? <laughs> nonstop. What do you teach? So obviously, you teach the, the speed of, a, of an aeroplane. Okay, so if I'm on a plane later on today and I've got my, I don't know, my string and my conker, yeah. which is what everyone obviously takes on a Duh. plane, what do you, how can you tell how fast the plane is when it's going up into the air? I just shut my eyes and dream of lovely things. Uh, do you, if, you, uh, if you mark the, uh, um, you know, like I was a protractor from school where you go from zero to 180 degrees, if you hang it uh, straight down, you know the word plumber comes from the Latin for uh, uh, lead, lead. lead, because it's a plumb line hanging down. If you're not accelerating, just hang straight down. If you accelerate, you know how you're pushed back in the seat kind of hard. In a sports car, pushed a lot. In, a, in an airplane, only a little bit. Well, the plumb line will, will identify that. It might go five degrees back, 10 degrees back. And there's a little formula. If you uh, work out, uh, just count how many seconds of acceleration it is, you can work out the takeoff speed. It's quite nice. Okay. And the airplanes take off at a constant rate because they pull those levers in front or press the buttons these days. And the plane engines are pretty much close to full. Um, so the, uh, the acceleration rate's constant. Wonderful. Latika, how do you feel about having... David Badana sitting next to you on a plane. <laughs> I really like you, David, but that's my worst nightmare. Oh. I'm very much get on the plane, don't talk. I'm, I've become a proper Londoner like this on the tube. I like to sit in my corner, headphones in. I have a particular playlist I play, and I always find takeoff not so great for calculating mathematical formulas in my head, but great for sleeping. And so I am one of those absolute people who just the moment that Whatever that feeling is, David, that you're describing, I'm not calculating. I'm dozing. That's out. And that's that wonderful. Me is, it's a total thrill. The minute it's V1 rotate, it's like, wow, this is super. And I love the fact that you literally leave your earthly cares behind. There's I something that I find do. so liberating about that. Yes, it's headphones in, eyes closed, and I'm off and having a good time in my head. Wonderful. Okay. How do you get over the fact that uh, apparently on airplanes, many people have not been in a car since the 1960s, and they don't know how to fasten a seatbelt. So they spend a long time talking after takeoff, telling you how to fasten a seatbelt, which they assume you've never seen before. I, I, I'm with you in... Uh, 
at least when I'm on my own, liking to rest. But they talk and they talk and they talk before you can do the rest. So I made it a thing that if I'm wearing a dress or some kind of coat or robe or something, I always put the seatbelt over because I've learned the hard way that they'll come and wake you up and say, where is where is your seatbelt? Um, and if I'm in the exit row, I'll have done all the communication with them before. I understand English. I understand how to exit. I read the safety leaflet, blah, blah, blah. This is an efficient traveller. I have it down pat. Wow. Perfect. My God. And how deep we go into our rituals when you get on an aeroplane. Yeah, I have a friend who does, she goes one step further. She has an eye mask, she meditates, and she has a scarf that she wraps around her head. Goodness me. Yeah, how about you? so I, I feel like I'm quite normal. Not quite as normal as David, who's got his protractor <laughs> and his string out on the, tra- <laughs> on the plane. <laughs> um, let's look at the, the week's papers. Let's stick with this uh, this travel theme. Um, Latika, you wanted to tell us about the fact that we're all getting back on a plane, despite the fact that if you check the prices recently, they are sky high. Well, it's incredible. I mean, I was looking at flights to Australia just last week, and it struck me that I have a voucher that I didn't get to use from a flight during the pandemic. £432, I believe it was, for a Qantas flight to Singapore. That would not even get me to kind of... That won't get you to Rome now. Exactly. And it's just a mark of how uh, things have changed. Obviously, strange capacity, but huge demand from everybody to go travelling. And so um, tickets, are they estimate, according to a great article in the FT this weekend, around 30% higher. But that is not deterring anybody from travelling. Demand is absolutely surging and remaining constant. And there's a real question here about, given what we hear about inflation and the cost of living, how long travellers are willing to accept these super high prices. Of course, it's longer for long-haul flights and to countries that haven't bounced back as well with their capacity since the pandemic. But even European flights, I'm finding, are are quite expensive. And I've been to Brussels a couple of times in the last few weeks weeks, Emma, and the Eurostar is also really, really expensive at the moment. It's it's astonishing what we're getting used to as well. But um, I I love this article in the FT for that very reason that people are asking the question, at what point do you say actually we can't do this anymore? Um, And given the fact that if we are dealing with inflation, cost of living, uh, and huge profits at the energy companies as well, let's not, you know, and IAG's back into profits. So so it looks like the future is rosy for airlines. and yet we're still thinking, yeah, actually, we'll just, I don't care how much we want to pay. We will just get on that plane. I wonder whether it's because here in the, in, in the UK, at least, it's rained and has been cold for the last two weeks. Mm. And that was a bit of a reason why I decided that this mm. afternoon I'm going to be on a plane to Nice. I, I, I think the rain is definitely part of it. Another part is guilt. Uh, remember <laughs> a, a while ago you could take time off work because you wanted to chill. Now you have to go to Starbucks to get caffeine so you can become a more efficient uh, production person. People will pay these incredible prices, which sometimes, you know, it's difficult with uh, mortgages and stuff going up because at home you feel guilty all the time. Everybody, women especially, I think, but men also, because at home you could be doing something else. Suppose you have like a quiet weekend. If you stay at home, well, you could maybe do work over the insurance a little bit or check some work emails or do things like that. You constantly feel guilty. There's stuff to do either around the house or for your personal development or something. When you're on the airplane, the moment, as you were saying, when the doors close and it rotates, you're free free from planet Earth. And when you go to another place, hopefully you don't have great internet connection and you don't have your stuff around. Your stuff that reminds you like this pile of paper sitting here or this thing that's not being cleared. You're free and independent. Which reminds me of the most erotic sentence in the English language. We're which waiting. Is, Hang on. 
room service. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, the the lack of Wi-Fi is sometimes, you know, a a curse and other times a huge blessing. Um, Organising a trip right now with my girlfriends and we're tossing up whether to kind of go to remote Scotland or Europe. And and the first question that comes back is uh, from one of the girls, it's got to have good Wi-Fi. I need to be able to do a little bit bit of work. And I do like Wi-Fi, but I must admit the only time I've ever managed to properly plough through massive, massive classics uh, is when I've had none at all. And I read War and Peace when I went for a couple of weeks to Raja Ampat, which is this very, very remote place of Papua, West Papua. And there's absolutely zero connectivity. But it did mean I read Tolstoy. You read it. And for that, I'm forever grateful. That's mm-hmm. wonderful. And it may never happen to you ever again. Exactly. This is this is the whole thing. And But there is that really strange thing now that... that the um, administrations and countries are now realising that lots and lots of people are working abroad and then they are trying to work out, well, at what point do we tax you? Do we tax you for checking your emails? No. But do we tax you if you spend more than a month on a beach in Bali running a small company or doing whatever you can? Or do we tax your company? Or do we tax you in your local place? Or do you tax you at home? And the OECD, I know for a fact, and, and, and tax lawyers are making you know a healthy, tidy sum out of this because no one's quite worked out how to deal with a global workforce anymore. It's really good. Um, uh, there's something called unitary taxation, which the uh, uh, Amazons and Starbucks of the world hate but which uh, small localities like, which might be part of it. In the 1800s, when rail lines were going through California and places, those rail companies got really rich. They didn't pay taxes. They said we would pay tax on the amount of metal in our, in our rails, not on the value of stuff that came through. Something called unitary taxation came in saying, look, I don't care how the accountants shove it around. The amount of business you make in California you have to pay tax on. So uh, Starbucks and Amazon, uh, they hate that sort of thing. They fight tooth and nail against unitary taxation because that means if you do work in England, you kind of have to pay taxes on that stuff in England. You can't put it off in some subsidiary in Luxembourg or Ireland. So I think that notion might come back. Uh, the solution there is to tie in with our aliens in the sky. Right. Have little trackers, possibly in the left <laughs> earlobe, tell you where you are and how attentive you are. Could You could use it also in marital counseling. Darling, you're not listening. I was. Here, let's look at the evidence on this large board floating above <laughs> our house. Oh, I can't wait for that to happen. I recently met someone at a conference center who proudly told me they split their time between Dubai, Europe, and two other places. And I said, oh, Oh, so you're a tax dodger. <laughs> and, and what did they say to that? They looked quite ashamed and said yes. <laughs> yes, because, it, I mean, as a, an Australian working for an Australian company in the UK, surely this is something that was a big question that was asked when you moved over. Yes, I mean, I have to account for all my taxes in this way, including, you know, income that I might get from my book royalties in Australia uh, to my tax, which I pay here as a UK resident. Um, but absolutely, I mean, my, I'm very lucky because my company gives me tax advice to, to be able to do that. But uh, I'm I'm very adamant that you just pay the tax. Why? I, I, I don't really understand people who spend inordinate amount of money not being able to put roots down in a country and call it home in order to just avoid tax. To pretend that you're somewhere else. Yes. No. Um, how about you, David? What else have you spotted in the papers this weekend? I know you wanted to talk to us about squirrels. Squirrel. With a serious point to it. This is, we're not just doing a handbrake turn to squirrels. We're, we're, we're very happy about squirrels. It turns out a lot of people talk about the invasive 
gray squirrels as this awful thing, like they're they're coming in small boats across the channel. No, no, like they've they've been introduced <laughs> and they're they're invading our country and they're different from good authentic uh, English red squirrels. Well, it turns out there's been a wonderful book about this recently, pointing out that in the 1800s, red squirrels were considered vermin and pests, and nobody liked them. They were like kind of disgusting. And then as you got mass immigration into uh, Britain from Central and Eastern Europe and stuff around the turn of the of the last century, people began to get really upset about these new gray squirrels. So the gray squirrels were sort of a, a surrogate for that. They're squirrels. There's a rhetoric here that's being played out, isn't there, Latika? We're not just talking about squirrels, but David very quickly made the, drew the analogy of the squirrels on, on those little boats coming to the United Kingdom. The otherness, indeed. Yes, otherness, that's the word. Yes. I mean, but you see this a lot. I mean, in my country, Australia, we had cane toads and things like this introduced, and it was really, really devastating for the natural wildlife, and it's something that we still grapple with. But I do see, and I do worry about how we stereotype and perceive um all of God's creatures. So for me, it's deadly snakes, which I grew up with. Uh, very had many, many, many close encounters. And as I've become older and looked into snakes, I find them really fascinating. They're very, very peculiar, especially unique animals. And the tendency, of course, in Australia, when you find one of these snakes in your house or in your pool, as I had, uh, swimming alongside me, or kind of next to you when you're gardening. Um, you want to kill them, naturally. I don't. Second. I want to run away really well, fast. Well, yes, but if you run away, Emma, they run after you oh, and they're God. faster. So the trick is you've got to stay as still as you can. Not that that has always been uh, what kicks into gear when that has happened to me as a young child, but that is the actual advice that you're meant to take. Um but, of course, the tendency is to kill them, and that's what we would do when, when we found these really close to the house or in and around the house. But in hindsight, I wonder if that was a really bad thing to do. We did once when I... Uh, for the snake, it wasn't great. Well, when, when we had a snake at King Brown in the pool with me, um, we managed to call up a, up a couple of neighbours and subdue it enough. It got very aggressive. We didn't realise that they kind of do swim and operate and thrive and bite underwater as well. Um, we did manage to get it into a sack, put it in the freezer and wait for wires to come out and collect it. And that, that snake had a happy ending. But lots of other snakes met uh, the blade of a spade, I'm, I'm afraid. It, it ties in actually with um, uh, how can you defend yourself without overdoing it? Defend without overdefending. Yes. So uh, uh, a while ago, when there was um, uh, when tides or big waves would wash away beaches, people would try to put cement blocks in the water to uh, keep the beaches from being washed away. It seems logical. Use big, heavy, chunky technology, and that, as you know, often doesn't work. It doesn't allow the beaches to be replenished with sand. So now there's much more subtle ways of mm. doing it. So you can still have the goal uh, preserving your beaches or uh, being safe while you're swimming from having a snake swimming next to you and whispering into your ear, uh, you can preserve that, but maybe with some sort of landscape design or, or natural barriers. Uh, the reflex of, I'm going to kill any uh, local snake, ties in with, I have no interest in local indigenous culture. What could it possibly give to me? I don't recognize it. I well... I mean, we have the same debate, too, about sharks, because any time a shark kills somebody in Australia, I mean, we've, we've got a constant debate about using shark nets, which kill and trap a lot of other uh, wildlife in the sea, including dolphins. Um, but there is this huge tendency in Australia, and it's always perplexed me, that if somebody dies of a shark bite, the instinct is to go and try and hunt the shark and kill it, as though the shark knows any difference between what it's just bitten that was in the water. Lunch you know, is lunch. Whether, whether it was a seal or a human, it doesn't know. I, mean, I love that idea of being... Uh passive in all this, um, David, because a few years ago I was running in the countryside in Italy 
and I had no phone, I had no contact, I was miles from anywhere, and guess what? A black viper came Oof, and par- parked itself on the path in front of me. And I must confess, this is something that comes back to me in my dreams at night. This doesn't go away. And it literally just went across the path, and I thought, well, I can't step over it, I can't run away, so I just stood there and waited for it to go. But it was very much on its terms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, was, it, wasn't, it was a very uneven um, encounter. Simply, mm-hmm. be, And I got back to the wherever I was staying, and I said, I've just seen a viper, and they just went, mm, you don't want to meet one of those. Oof. But that whole feeling of being completely out of control and having to just stand there and say, right, okay, Mr. or Mrs. Viper, your game here, you just go, because I'm not going to try and get involved. What you did was, first of all, it was exactly right. I, I, you know, I, uh, you survived to tell the story. Thank you. And also that, <laughs> but that's a beautiful moment of, of connection. Again, it's not passive in the sense of uh, we, we shouldn't take uh, defenses against um, uh, dangerous animals. <clears throat> but sometimes one can do defenses with either with ultrasound or with different crops or gravel or things like that. I didn't have that to my No, no you didn't have that. So that moment that you were at is a really intense moment. It's very rare that we're connected like that. A cloud levy Strauss, the great anthropologist, finished uh, his best book after all these travels in the Amazon and these profound insights and understanding of different civilizations. He ends up back in his apartment in Paris, and he's looking in his cat at his cat, and he's looking in the cat's eyes, and the cat is looking deeply at him. And Levi Strauss, for me, one of the greatest minds of the 20th century, honestly can't decide if they have an incredibly deep understanding or if there's nothing there. And that's where he ends you wondering. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. The time here is n- in uh, London is 9.33. Let's head to Barcelona now to hear from Monocle's North Africa correspondent, Mary Fitzgerald, who joins us this weekend. A very good morning to you, Mary. Good morning, Emma. Do you have snake encounters you need to share with us before we've even started? No second good. snake encounters to report, thankfully. Excellent. I'm delighted to hear it. We can move on safely without giving me uh, slight anxiety. Um, let's talk about what's, uh, what's been happening with where you are. You've been in Barcelona where there's been a really disruptive election in the last week. That's right. I've been here for over a week. Uh, the election was was last weekend, of course, and uh, we knew that evening that basically this uh, the result was going to lead to a bout of horse trading, so to speak, in terms of trying to form a, a coalition government. That has uh, there's even more of a spanner in the works since yesterday, because yesterday um, the ballots that were um, deposited by Spaniards living abroad, and that comes to about two hundred and fifty thousand votes. Um, they were tallied, and this has basically led to a redistribution of seats in the parliament, which means that Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez, his chances of forming a coalition government have become more difficult. And that, of course, makes uh, another election uh, more likely. Uh, but much to to see what happens in the, in the next weeks. What's been the discussion where you are? Because obviously it was Pedro Sanchez who called this snap election in May uh, because his party hadn't done so well, and he clearly thought he, this was his chance to try and sort of seize back the initiative. Um, but when you are walking around Barcelona, are people surprised by this or are they contemplating Spain moving more to the right for the first time in five years? Well, Barcelona and Catalonia more generally, of course, has a unique dynamic in terms of the the Catalan nationalist uh, dynamic here. Uh, Interestingly, nationalists uh, lost uh, seats in this particular election. But I think whether in Catalonia or other parts of of Spain, um, the fact that, you know, this fear that Vox, the far right party, um, would be part of a new coalition government, that fear was, was widespread here. And, you know, people in Spain had seen how Vox had behaved in local 
government more, more recently. And I think what was interesting is that as we see the far right kind of, in a way, normalizing or going through normalization process in places like France and that to, to appeal to a, a wider segment of the population, here Vox actually was, was far more radical and reactionary. And I think the way they tried to fuel a, a culture war, so to speak, in Spain, seizing on issues like LGBTQ rights, et cetera, issues that basically there's broad consensus on and in Spain, that I think caused a backlash because many of the people I discussed Vox with here, they said, you know what, their rhetoric, their actions in local government are reminders of a very dark, dark time in our history. And I think that was uh, that sparked then the backlash against them. Mary, let's move on to the other big story of the week that's been dominating the southern Mediterranean, which are these dreadful wildfires, which have claimed lives, decimated businesses, ruined very profitable tourist seasons for lots of people. Yes, indeed. It has been a, a nightmarish week, I think, all told around the Mediterranean with very few corners of the region uh, escaping the, the wildfires. More than 40 people uh, died in those fires across the, the region. Of course, th- thousands have displaced. And most of those deaths were in Algeria and Tunisia, two countries where basically the, the means of tackling this challenge, which is a challenge faced by all countries, uh, rimming the the um, the Mediterranean, of course, um, they they lack capacity in many ways to to tackle this. But I think what's interesting is is you know I've been reading um, different uh, media commentaries from different countries around uh, the Mediterranean this week, and interesting in terms of the soul searching, it's triggering about how to tackle this challenge in the long term, how to ch- tackle it uh, collectively as well, and of course discussions over how the tourism industry so vital for the entire. Uh, region can can adapt. Uh, I find it fascinating that, you know, there's a conversation happening where people are talking about, well, will the world's idea of a Mediterranean break or a Mediterranean holiday now, uh, from now on, relate less to the summer months and more to, say, April or September, October, because this idea, the temperatures will be so much that um, that people will will simply not want to go to the Mediterranean during high summer. Latika, Australia is about five, ten years ahead of us all on this one, isn't it? So when when Australia has been watching what's been happening in the Med, are they are they doing it sadly from a point of view of experience and knowledge? Yes, nodding along with Mary there as she's speaking because this is all so familiar, everything that she's talking about. Um, And I do think the whole world needs to recalibrate on how we consider extreme temperature seasons, a bit the way that when you go to Central Asia or the Middle East, you have a very hot season where you don't travel or a cooler season where it's kind of, this is going to be okay. I mean, we had, we don't call them wildfires, we call them bushfires in Australia a couple of years ago, and they were absolutely you know, cataclysmic for the country, almost apocalyptic. And it really did change, I think, the course of that country's climate change policy. But also it started to have uh, trigger this conversation about what does the shape of our disaster resilience look like? Uh, One, it was also a holiday season. There was this uh, huge ad, it cost millions, uh, featuring Kylie Minogue that Tourism Australia had just put out, encouraging British people to go on holiday in Australia. And then bang, the country is on fire. They had to pull that ad and it's never been seen again because the timing was just terrible. So all this energy and money spent trying to promote the country to a particular market up in smoke, literally. And then you have the second question of, okay, well, if people are caught in these situations in these countries, what do they do? What are their insurance mechanisms? What are their uh, payback? What about tourism operators? And then, of course, more importantly, 
who comes along and fixes the damage? Because we in Australia have been using the army to do a lot of this work and it's not gone down well and it's the army does not, the military says, you know, we, we can't be disaster relief. That's not our job. Our job is to protect and secure the country. And they're right. So now we have to look at maybe do, do countries establish permanent resilience disaster management teams? Is this something that the new world looks like? This has been happening in uh, Athens, hasn't it, Mary, that they have a, a dedicated uh, climate change extreme heat um, person. We spoke to her a little while ago on uh, on Monocle Radio talking about the fact that actually when the extreme heat arrived in <coughs> Athens a few weeks ago, they were ready. Her job was done. She had just spent weeks and weeks and weeks and months for planning for emergency places for the elderly to go to, for um, to you know to locate places where you could go and stay cool and work out how to do your work in temperatures of, of, of 40 degrees plus. I mean, in Barcelona, is there any sense that people are actually taking this seriously as as an urban issue or is this just something that happens outside town? Yes, it's very much part of the conversation here um, in terms of, of how the city is adapting again. Um, they haven't appointed uh, a heat czar as as Athens has, um, but certainly the way this, this conversation is feeding into conversations about urban planning, etc. I was really struck actually this week by noticing uh, for the first time how many trees you have on the streets of Barcelona. Of course, we know that this is, is one of the ways where, you know, um, heat, heating, overheating can be deflected. It really struck me because uh, in in my hometown, my adopted hometown of Marseille, just around the corner from where I live, the municipal authorities this week chopped down a beautiful old uh, tree that was much beloved uh, in the neighbourhood. So the kind of um, the contrast between the two was really striking. David, and just let's bring you in on this one about people's preparedness for for c- catastrophe. Um, it, it takes an event like what's happening in the southern Mediterranean at the moment for people to take to pay attention. But as Latika says. Who fixes it all? Uh, I, I think there's there's two things going on. I used to live in the southern Mediterranean for, for years in the foothills of the Alps, and uh, people would build uh, homes in beautiful areas where the fire would swirl up, um, and it was a question of who fixed it. At that time, it was small scale. Uh, I think we can folk, talk a lot about uh, the teams that will be built up, uh, alternate army groups. The CRS in France does a lot of uh, good stuff in the countryside, but it misses the... Um, uh, the way that, uh, sadly, in politics, we often go towards what's easy rather than what's important. Uh, if you have water going down the channel, it'll take the channel of, of least resistance. Uh, SUVs, as you know, are incredibly uh, wasteful, and they pour out a huge amount of CO2. I was just reading that if you made SUVs stop and bring us back to the car fleet of a few years ago where people had more ordinary uh, saloon cars, you would save an incredible amount of CO2, like, like maybe large countries' worth. So it's easy to say, let's work out, Australians are well organized. Let's have 10,000 people, 40,000 people in this sort of uh, um, emergency uh, program to fix things. But it would be much, uh, we, and that's, I think, possibly good to do, but you don't want to do it uh, if you're going to miss these uh, other controls on the source. And what we've seen today, um, Latika, is we've seen the British Prime Minister saying that he's ordering a review of low traffic neighbourhoods, saying that he's on the side of drivers. This isn't helping, is it? Because it's politicisation of a bigger problem. I think Europe is catching up a bit to where Australia has been on this. Uh, you know, cl- Australia's had a very bad reputation for dodging its obligations on climate change in, until the change of a government at the last election, and rightly so. But what Australia also clocked, I think, a lot earlier than what we've seen in Europe and Britain is 
there is a cost to climate change mitigation and it's hip pocket. It's not all going to be subsidised by the government. Funnily enough, when you go and ask people how much cost they're willing to bear, they're not willing to bear costs they think are unacceptable or out of balance. And so I think we're now seeing that debate start in earnest in Europe and Britain to... I think a lot of people in Australia were quite surprised that this debate was never really current when we were having it. We've we've really had this in earnest. I think you're starting to have it. It's at a more critical time. And so I think it's not going to be as as awful as it was in Australia and, and curb climate change policy as much as it did in Australia. But I think there's a lot of evidence out there showing it's going to be very difficult for countries to meet their net zero obligations or meet them in time. And this is a a conversation we do have to have and be very, very realistic and uh, upfront with people. How much do we have to change our lifestyles? Because I'm not entirely sure that if you go around and say to people, we're not ready to switch our sources of energy yet, it's up to you to stop flying, it's up to you to stop driving, it's up to you to stop behaving the way you've always behaved. I'm not sure that that's going to be overly popular and we do have to keep that balance in mind. And Mary, tying into all that, finally, you, you've you noticed the fact that you, you know, you're in Barcelona and you also live in Marseille, two places which we are all desperate to go to because it's beautiful and it's, and it's a nice place to go for a break. Um, but obviously there are huge consequences that the cities have to bear for that, isn't there? Indeed, it's been fascinating Marseille's evolution from a city that uh, so many people tended to avoid. Uh, It was burdened with a rather unsavoury reputation for many, many years. And in recent years, it's become this hip, fashionable destination that, as you say, everybody wants to to visit. But with that come local concerns about touristification. So we've seen campaigns against Airbnb, etc. But also just a general sense that the city is becoming really crowded now, particularly in, in high summer. And many local residents and indeed people within the um, city hall are looking at places like Barcelona, Lisbon, etc., and looking to see what they can learn from uh, the mistakes, so to speak, of those cities to avoid being, as as several people in, in Marseille have told me in recent years, another Barcelona. Mary Fitzgerald, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Barcelona. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. I'm joined in the studio by Letika Burke and David Badanis. Uh, Letika, what else have you spotted in the papers today? Uh, Emma, um, I thought we were actually going to have a great chat about Oppenheimer. Yes. Is this possible? Yes. So, um, Because I'm very excited. I'm going to see the Barbie movie tonight. Right. Which one have you seen? Which okay, one I did it in the right order, I think, for a monocle <laughs> audience. Go I saw on. Oppenheimer last week, Barbie this week. Okay. That's okay, okay? I think that's okay. Um, there was a lovely article I think I've mentioned before about um, the, the, in The Guardian by saying don't do... Oppenheimer first and Barbie on the same day because it's like being at your <laughs> <laughs> like being at your mother's funeral and then you get flash mobbed by a bunch of pink clowns. So it is a little bit. But you've 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 kept a decent amount of space. I've kept a decent amount of space. Have you guys seen Oppenheimer? No, I've seen Barbie. You oh, you did it the other <laughs> way round. She waited a while to confess that. I don't that. think I've actually got the mental capacity for Oppenheimer at the what moment. What do you mean? Well, it's just it, I'm not. You need to be. I am assuming to be in a reasonable frame of mind to deal with the apocalypse, where it's slightly easier to handle a plastic doll and Ryan Gosling. Um, I don't know. Um, no, this is a big thing for you, isn't it, David? Because you you've written books on Einstein. Mm. So so Einstein and the whole sort of scientific world is you're steeped in this kind of stuff, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, and when I was a, a younger, I, I knew a lot of people who'd worked uh, well with Oppenheimer, and many of them weren't that old. Um, this was like uh, the seventies. So if they were twenty, then they were you know people around fifty and stuff. So they they had really living uh, living memories and stuff. 
Have you seen the film? Uh, no, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, the reason is sometimes I watch films that I know a little bit about, and I was like, oh, dread through uh, clenched fingers. But uh, uh, Nolan's made a, a great job of it from the reviews I've read, and it's really, really uh, spot on. Uh, I love the fact that... Um, uh, these these uh, significant issues can be put across not in a dull and worthy way, but as a great film. The main actor is magnificent, and the supporting uh, uh, actors are really good. And it's a heck of a story, and it's super relevant to AI and everything like that. What do you do when you have this incredible power, and power, as when Spider-Man says, comes with responsibilities? What was your reaction to the film? I, I really loved it. It's certainly not without flaws. Um, and definitely a lot of the critiques that you'll read are all true. There's a lot of cliched writing. I thought some of the shots were very cliched and, and a bit uh, tired. Matt Damon was a caricature walking around with a fake moustache in costume. I thought he was terrible. But Killian Murphy is just sublime and carries the entire thing. You could just watch him the entire three hours and it's it's magnificent. The other thing I would say about Christopher Nolan is um, sound. There is no director, I think, that uses sound as well as Nolan. And I really realised it in Dunkirk. And knowing I liked that and knowing I liked Killian Murphy, I went to see Oppenheimer, not actually knowing that much about the film, uh, about his story. And it's completely captivating, and I agree with you, David, completely profoundly relevant to what's happening today. And when you were talking to the people who knew and worked with Oppenheimer, how much were you discussing the enormous issues that are associated with you know, being the people who created the bomb? Uh, many of them felt guilty, and many of them felt guilty enough to die. Uh, a number of the atomic scientists who worked there died of bone cancer in the 1950s, just a few years later, uh, Fermi uh, and a few others. They didn't know about the buildup of radiation. Mm. Uh, many of them were uh, critical because at, at the time in 1945, today it's common to say that the bomb was necessary to save lives on the whole rather than invasion. Um, if you go back to the time, the uh, the head of uh, strategic bombing, uh, LeMay, was against dropping the atomic bomb, and uh, Admiral King, the head of the U.S. Navy, was against dropping it also. Eisenhower had his doubts. Uh, there was feelings that there could be uh, uh, other ways to end the war. So one was the ethical issue. The other one was Oppenheimer himself. Some physicists are very simple. They're the stereotype of somebody into this uh, great thing. Oppenheimer was complex. He was, in one sense, he was a great phony. He was exceptionally quick-witted. I, many of us have friends who are quick-witted, but they don't really do as much with it as they should. So Oppenheimer was a really good physicist, but he wasn't at the level of Einstein or Heisenberg. And he knew it. It drove him nuts. He was quicker than them. Uh, he was a master of languages. I think that's in the film. He learned things very quickly. And he was good, but he wasn't great. The one thing he was good at was understanding insecurities. He was very, very uncomfortable with himself. His mother was uh, slightly uh, deformed. Um, and they never talked about it in his wealthy New York family. So he was used to the unsaid. So it turns out he was a good but not great physicist. If it hadn't been for the war, he would be largely forgotten as an important second-tier physicist. But in the war with administration, his understanding of the weaknesses in human nature mean he knew exactly what button to push to motivate different people. For some would be pride, for some would be glory, for some would be helping their, uh, their ill wife. And there's an amazing article in Le Figaro this weekend. Uh, the magazine has gone to two of the five sites where they are developing and keeping nuclear bombs, which suddenly brings it massively into 
today that this is still going on behind closed doors and we just assume that it's you know nuclear deterrence happens somewhere else it happens off you know offshore or doesn't happen down the road from us that was exactly my thought watching this i was like um you know how very successful movies turn things that were very mundane into tourism sites and people go and see them and i did wonder how much renewed interest this will have in the process of nuclear facilities and and things like this and test bomb sites, which is not a bad thing in itself. I think if there's more understanding of the impact and where these bombs have been tested, I mean, in the Pacific, for example, is a good example um, of places that people probably have, have forgotten about in living memory that yeah, these things happened and they had impact and real devastating causes and also shaped policy positions in many countries surrounding that area uh, that now stick with us as we grapple with different threats and and how to deter those. And it is that strange mundanity, isn't it, and that faraway feeling. This, this article in Le Figaro is talking about the fact that when they're driving around, they go between little electric cars, between discrete buildings built in the 1970s. They're scattered between trees, which gives everything a bit of a du- bucolic atmosphere. Mm. And everything, you know... Off to the canteen, pick up your, you know, your work, clock in, build a bomb. It's such a strange contrast. <laughs> totally, isn't it? humans can can actually uh, separate that out. When the bomb was dropped in uh, Japan the first time, uh, the blast was so bright it hit the moon and reflected back. Wow! So about four seconds later, it was it was back on Earth from that. Um, uh, in one of my books, Equals MC Squared, I spent a chapter writing about what happened inside the bomb as it was falling, not what happened on the ground, but just the transformations in it, just as it began. It was uh, the most difficult and I think, in a sense, weirdly, I don't want to say beautiful, but for me, it was the most meaningful chapter I think I've written in all my books. Just what was happening, that moment of inevitability, there was a transformation happening inside this thing that looked like a large metal garbage can. And the lives of the people below was utterly preordained. They had no idea. What was happening? Was there any sort of reaction going on? Or was it just something yeah. falling? It, it was falling, falling, falling. It was aimed to explode about 1,500 feet over a hospital, uh, sadly enough. Um, uh, not, not over a military uh, a depot, but over a civilian area. And within it, there was just the beginning of the materials inside were beginning to blow apart and then blow apart a bit more and blow apart a bit more. If you ever watch a, a judo match, uh, before somebody lands on the ground, you see somebody's hands get in a certain position on the other person's collar, and then the game is over. If you know what's going on, what follows next is inevitable. And I found it uh, really sad. It reminded me of a time, you know, when uh, if you have a dog, it lies on its back, and you scratch the dog's little belly, and the dog's happiest could be total trust in us as superior, more powerful human beings. The U.S. Air Force had total control and choice and power over Japan at that time. And this is what happened. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. And at the beginning of the programme, we had our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, on the line from Sud Tirol. And he was halfway through telling us about something which had made him almost throw something across a plane because he was so cross. I am delighted to say that we can end that story hopefully now because Tyler joins us back on the line. Hello, Tyler. Hello, Emma. Thanks for the impossible task as well. Jumping from, uh, of course, uh, detonation of nuclear devices uh, over Japan to going back to the world of glossy magazines. But I'll try to make a a transition if if I can. Have a go. Uh, well, where, 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 did we, where did we leave off in the story? Because um, I'm not sure where, at what point the line dropped. Because the further you move away from the church steeples in Sudtirol, uh, then, of course, the further away you are from, of course, the, um, the telecom masts as well. Okay, so go and uh, snuggle up against the church wall and continue your story. We were at the point where you were on an aeroplane, you were reading magazines, you were going back to a publishing house, which you knew was in trouble, but you wanted to give it a last chance. And then you opened the magazine and you realized that, Always lost. Always lost. And all is lost because uh, there's a couple of things. 
the romance of journalism has disappeared, and this is maybe in a world of new management speak. So these are titles which they don't have edit- they don't have editors in chief anymore. They have content directors and content managers, as opposed to being an editor. And I, I always sort of believe that if you're managing something, you're pushing some things away, you're reorganizing. But the job of editing is also about cutting, and it's about having. Of course, the power of conviction, uh, the power of experience and exposure to say, this belongs on page, this doesn't. This is a half page. This is worth five pages. This should be a spread. This should be, you know, uh, maybe a small news story. And I sort of, I got to the front of the magazine. I was going through it rather calmly. And I saw this, which to me is not even Journalism 101. It's something maybe your son Hugo could have done when he was age five. He said, go and make a magazine for your classroom. And, And this was... Having interiors, it was a series of, they took a series of Wes Anderson films, of course, inspired and, 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 pl- and, and of course, uh, plugging the latest release uh, that he has out. And, and then they went and created a series of, of one-page clip art images, press call-ins, uh, various furniture, knickknacks, uh, tchotchkes, uh, that were inspired by these films. I thought, this is really the end of proper interior glossy publishing. And, 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 and so I thought, okay, well, I'll put down the German edition. And then I went and picked up the French edition. And we didn't have the same story repeated, but we had basically the same stories all over again. And the magic of summertime used to be getting a Spanish edition, an Italian edition, a German edition, a French edition of a magazine, and just, get, just losing yourself in all these amazing summer homes, uh, looking at, at fantastic furniture. And that's all gone because everything has been commoditized, slimmed down, lots of titles in different languages, all the same stories. Regional priorities are so different, aren't they? I mean, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to heading to Nice. Really, Nice Airport is one of my favourite places on earth because you just scoop up stuff that you know will sit on your coffee table for about six or seven months and it's only when you're doing some clearing out that you spend an hour sitting on the floor going, oh my goodness, there's Nice Matin and all, you know, the, all the beautiful, beautiful French magazines that we'll be able to read. Um, there is that joy of being... The, the joy of a magazine, surely, is to transport you to somewhere where you really want to be, Tyler. Absolutely. That's what a great magazine does. There's a sense of fantasy, there's a sense of escapism, that you know, you're cleaning out your, your, your flat or tidying up, Emma, but you get lost in the page. I, would, I could really live in a nice, modernist bungalow in Toulon. I never thought about moving to Toulon, but now I'm going to have a conversation with the family. Oh, funnily enough, I'm actually looking at international schools in Toulon as well. That's what a great magazine does. And sadly, we've moved into a place with, with many titles uh, where it's, you know, there's, of course, the, the desire to save money um, and also just a little bit of a lack of fantasy, sometimes becoming a bit too pragmatic. And also that sense of, oh, well, you know, this is, this, this is too expensive, so we can't feature that. Well, again, I go back to the idea you want to escape. You want to aspire to something bigger, more interesting, maybe unattainable. And that's what good journalism and publishing does, not in every sector, but if we're talking about glossy magazines, that's what they're there for. Taylor Brule, thank you so much for joining us once again on the line from Sid Tirol. And a big thanks to all my guests today as well, Latika Burke and David Badanis joining me in the studio, and Mary Fitzgerald on the line from Barcelona. Very quickly, where are you going to move to according to a, a, any glossy magazine? Where are you I would drilling? like Southern California. Okay, how about you, Latika? Somewhere in the Scandies. Excellent, somewhere in the Scandies, wonderful. And thanks too to Desiree Bandley, our producer, and our studio manager, Christy O'Grady. I'm Emma Nelson Monocle on Sundays back at the same time next week. But until then, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Goodbye. Thanks for listening.